you're listening to Hooked on Creek, a podcast celebrating the music, history, and fans of the legendary jam band, Max Creek. I am your host, Corey Johnson, and you are listening to episode 38. The bees are coming around there like a carpet on the town. They're making honey. They're making money. A million little wings, the wind beneath them six, they're sipping nectar. Thank you for joining me on this very special episode of Hooked on Creek that features my interview with Bill Carbone from Max Creek. Bill has been playing drums in Max Creek since 2011, and in this episode, you're going to hear Bill talk about his background in music, his introduction to Max Creek, his perspectives on playing in the band, and how music has influenced his life. We cover a lot of topics in our conversation, including questions submitted by fans of Max Creek. I even snuck in a couple questions that former drummers Greg Vasso and Scott Alsos had for Bill. I think you're really going to enjoy learning about Bill's passion for music, his love of Max Creek, and the relationships he has developed with current and former members of the band. As a reminder, you can read a full transcript of my interview with Bill Carbone by visiting the Hooked on Creek website at hookedoncreek.com. All right, we have a lot to get to, so let's get started. Bill Carbone, welcome to Hooked on Creek. Right on, Corey. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you on this podcast, finally. When you're sitting up on stage and you're looking out at the crowd in between Scott and Mark and John, and you see those faces of Creek Freaks, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? So lucky. Like, I'm telling you, man, like, I almost, like broke down crying sometimes on stage because I'm just like, like my dreams as a young person where to be in a band like fish, right. To like make it and get to jam and pretty unreasonable dream really when it comes down to it. Like it's so unlikely to happen, but I got what I wanted. <laughs> like I, I get to play the greatest music with the greatest people. And there's this crowd of people that support it and cheering on. There's this culture around it. You know, there's the, the Max Creek phrase. Thanks for being here. That's how I feel. Like, thanks for having me here. I joined, the band was 40 years deep. So I I didn't go through the hard parts. <laughs> I joined, it's all established. The people are there, right? Like, it's not as big as it once was for sure, but I got to do the good stuff. So I feel really grateful. And then I I come back to my one of my favorite Bob Marley lines all the time, which is uh, one good thing about the music, when it hits, you feel no pain. And we're so kind of fucked as a country right now there's so much hate and there's so much division and we're so into to dividing ourselves into groups about various beliefs and social media posts. And like, I'm so I'm prone to it too. I'm not like judging, you know, but at a concert, a good concert, it all melts away. As soon as the music starts, nobody thinks about that stuff anymore. I don't think about it. And I know when I'm in the audience of a great show, I don't think about it. And I know the crowd out there doesn't think about it. It's like, you've got this chance to create the perfect world for a couple hours. And it's just like, awesome. I'm so grateful for it. I want to talk about your history with Max Creek and some of the other ways music has shaped your life. But first, where did your love of music come from? And when did you first recognize the power of music? Mm. I am the MTV generation. I was born in 77. And, uh, my mom just had it on like she used it almost like a radio 
like I just remember the early MTV videos. They're like in my deep consciousness. And honestly, by the time I was in fourth grade, I knew that I was going to be in Poison. <laughs> the band Poison. <laughs> the band Poison. Right. Yeah. That seemed to me like the greatest possible outcome. You know, hair rock, late 80s, MTV, really big drum sets, really big hair, girls on cars. I mean, I don't even think I cared about the girls on cars, though. I was really ignoring them and just like the power and glory of hair rock. You know, you look at it now, but at the time it felt like a really big deal. Was there a guiding hand to to push you into picking up an instrument or, or learning music? I mean, my dad played guitar, but he had kind of stopped and uh, my mom had played piano and stopped. And no, like nobody forced it. I remember... Uh, in school, I remember third grade in school, you could join the orchestra, but I wanted to play guitar and there was no guitar. So I was like, well, I don't want to do that. And then in fourth grade, there was concert band started. And I don't know why I was like, I want to play the drums. And that was it. And by fifth grade, I was all in, you know, getting all the drum catalogs and looking at the 29 piece setups that I wanted and all that, you know, I'm not not the biggest guy, so I wasn't the greatest athlete. I knew I knew pretty young that uh, my baseball fantasy was not real, <laughs> and uh, but this felt great. I loved it right away. Like it just felt so cool, and I was hungry for it. So I was in school band, uh, and I was taking private drum set lessons. But like I I really have this visceral memory of being like between fifth and sixth grade the summer, and like trying to figure out what to do next on drums. But I didn't really have like a drum mentor around me like my drum lesson every week they would show me like beat and fill or like a couple little things but like i didn't have this sense of how to expand it so i remember taking all my um concert band music for school and like uh trying to figure out how to play two parts at the same time and stuff i don't know why the only thing i knew to look to was paper like i didn't think like let's put on this song i like and see if i can learn the beat i just looked at the paper because i guess i'm that's that was the beginning for me. Yeah, I would imagine as a drummer growing up, were you searching for bands to to play in as you entered high school? And was that a thing you did? We started them, dude. My first band was in fifth grade. It was two rappers and me on drums, and we had one song called Cheese. What was the name of the band? I gotta know. Do you remember? I don't remember. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, it was Jeff Scott, Chris Klitsky, and me. They were a rap duo first. We just did one song at the fifth grade talent show and it went really badly. I remember that. But then in sixth grade, we started a real band. So talent shows and battle of the bands were definitely the the stomping ground at first. But I was always a go-getter. By eighth grade, I was calling music venues in Connecticut and bars and trying to book us gigs. And I actually got us a few. There was a few weird ones where they were like, wait, what? (laughs) When we showed up. But so, yes, by high school, the bands were serious. You know, by the time I was a junior in high school, we were actually, I had a band that was like playing some of the same places Creek was playing. I remember playing the Globe Theater, um, which is now um, Wall Street in Norwalk, where Creek just played. But I knew that Creek had played there, you know? Yeah. So at some point in time, you're looking ahead and, and looking at a, where you want to go to school, what kind of career you want to have, and then music sort of stepped into that role too. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have to acknowledge my privilege when I talk about this. I, I never saw anything but music as the future and from a middle-class family who 
so like I was able to go to college and like do music. It's not like I was a trust fund kid or something, but I had this like knowledge of a, of a safety net. Like if everything failed, I could, I could lean on my parents, you know? So it was always music. So I ended up going to Boston. I got a, a half ride scholarship to go to Northeastern if I played in every ensemble, including the pep band. And I hated it so much. And I look back and I'm like, what a bastard I was. Like I got a half ride scholarship and I complained about it, you know, but I ended up transferring down the street to New England Conservatory. And uh, I mean, my vision was always music by high school. I had bands that were working professionally. Some of those guys and me ended up in Boston. We had a band called Miracle Orchestra. Uh, Garrett, the bass player in the motet, uh, was in the Miracle Orchestra with me. The sax player, Jared Sims, is now the head of jazz in Morgantown at West Virginia University. And we did well. Like our model was fish. Like I'm the fish generation, right? Like I'm, I'm much deeper of a deadhead, but I loved fish, especially like 92 to 96. You know, we went to so many shows and then our model was that kind of thing. And there was so much to do. Like it was such a lively time for music, especially in the Northeast like cities are so close here, right? So every city had two or three venues you could play at. So you could live in Boston and within two hours of Boston, there was like 10 different geographies you could reach and still make it home and sleep in your bed. That was the deal. Uh, Miracle Orchestra was doing really well for a while. Like we were, had a following in Denver. We did national tours a couple of times, but it, it didn't last. And, you know. I'm wondering as a student of music, is there something attractive to Grateful Dead and Fish music that you see that you can explore with your music background? Or what, what was your attraction to that genre of music, I guess? Totally, man. But like, so, you know, by the time I was really like getting serious about learning music, jazz had become sort of the academic standard, right? It's the Winton Marsalis era and jazz is starting to be called America's classical music. Totally love jazz. And I like worked really hard at playing it, but like I'm always culturally an outsider jazz is black american music right and on top of that like my cultural non-cultural upbringing in the world that created jazz it's also virtuosic to an extent that i recognize pretty quickly like yeah i'm pretty good but that's something different but in jazz there's like standards right and there's these huge body of material that everyone learns and then learns to play through you don't play There Will Never Be Another You because you want to play it exactly like the recording. You play it because it's a composition that serves as a starting point for exploration, right? And it gives you all the material to work with to express yourself through that song and then to come back to that song. I mean, I also just described The Grateful Dead, right? Like, that's what playing in the band is, or that's what He's Gone is, or that's what, like, any of these songs, like, they're the material, but really, like what musicians, I think, go crazy about for the dead is that they created an improvisational language so that you learn the songs and the songs are awesome. And the songs are awesome because you know them, too. So like I can play them and right away you're pulled in. But then when the improvisation starts, it's just like a jazz standard. I'm in a space that's been created. I have like language material to work with from them and from the things that they loved and from the things that I love and it can all come through and I can be myself in that space. Right. So to me, that's like the beauty of it. And actually one of the things I love most about Max Creek is that 
people make comparisons to the dead and they had a little period in the eighties where they played lots of dead songs, which like to some people they remember that period. They they're like a dead cover band, but like Back Street is not a dead cover band. <laughs> but uh the spirit of improvisation is from that generation. Like I think they developed their musical language almost concurrently or maybe just a few years later. So it's got like the same genetic information in it, right? Look at all these things that are happening in the United States musically. The band, Little Feet, Grateful Dead, Almond Brothers, a million other things, the Flying Burrito Brothers, depending on who you talk to in the band. Like all of that is mixed in there. And so it's like a different recipe made from the same basic materials, you know? Have you spent your life in the Northeast? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Always lived in either Connecticut, Boston, or New York City. So talk to me about the first time you heard of this band, Max Creek, or maybe heard the music of Max Creek. What was that first exposure like? I remember like when I first started trading tapes, people being like, yeah, you got to check out this band, Max Creek. And then I think... I got a dead tape that had a couple of filler songs on the end of it. That was Greek. She's here and something else. I totally remember that. And then somebody gave me a Max Creek tape. I wish I had kept my tapes. I traded like 300 dead and fish in Max Creek tapes for like a 12 pack of beer when I moved to New York <laughs> City. <laughs> There's just, you can't keep everything. Um, anyway. Yeah. I remember hearing it and being like, wow, this is so cool. And then from playing music, I always met kids that lived in other towns. So I had a friend that lived a couple towns over, which was the town that Vaso was from. So he knew Vaso and like worshiped Vaso, who was the drummer at the time. So he's like, we, you got to come with me. Let's go see Creek. Yeah. So I went a couple times. This is before GPS. I remember trying to get to the Sting in New Britain and getting really lost and just, and paying my $10 and walking in and catching like the last 15 minutes. But then I remember seeing them just a couple of, not lots of times, but a couple other times and just feeling my real visceral memory of watching him. Vasa was in the band. Pretty sure he had his white Yamaha kit set up. Picture the three toms across the front and they did same things. So it was just him and Scott out there. And he was playing that like thundering Tom Tom thing. And I was just like, well, shit, this is about as good as it gets, you know? And uh, just felt like it was so powerful and so cool. And then um, I was playing in this dead cover band called Shakedown. Not often. They would just like, when nobody else could do it, they would call me because I was only 17. So one night they had Vaso on drums. Uh, they're still around, by the way. Dave Frankel's still doing it. But uh, they had Vaso playing kit. And they were like, Bill, just bring some percussion and come play. And um, Vaso was super sweet and kind to me, even though I was just like a kid with a conga drum and a cowbell sitting next to him all night. And uh, we've been friends ever since, man. We just double drummed the other night. It was really nice to see him. And it's not like we see each other every month or sometimes even every year, but like we've been friends ever since then. And he's just a good dude. So he kind of helped reintroduce me to the band many years later. Yeah. We'll talk about that. What were the events that led to your ultimately getting this gig with Max Creek? So I, li I lived in Boston from 95 to 05, played in a bunch of different bands, but then I got a um, fellowship to go to Wesleyan University in Connecticut for ethnomusicology. So um, my wife and I moved to Middletown, Connecticut, where that is, back to the area. I'd been up in Boston and I had been like 
gigging like a madman in a million bands and stuff. And like, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop playing gigs and just do this grad school thing and like try to be a professor somewhere or something. And that lasted for like a year, <laughs> but I, I stayed in school, but the not playing music thing. The next year, my friend from Boston was playing with Melvin Sparks and called and was like, we need a sub to do a weekend of festival gigs with Melvin Sparks. And I was like, okay. And then Melvin asked me to join his band. And then I was back in. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> um, and I'm in Connecticut. I'm like making new friends. I hooked up with Matt Ziner, who's good friends with Mark, who's playing in Matt Ziner's band. Mark sat in. I reconnected with Vaso because Vaso's family still lived in Brantford. And I connected with him a couple of times. And they were doing like the drummer by committee thing. So Vaso was back in rotation. All's House was in the band, but missing a lot of gigs because of his job. And then DeGooks was back in. So every show, there was two drummers, but like, I wasn't there. But as far as I know, a lot of times, like the guys in the band didn't know which two drummers would be there until they showed up. <laughs> and uh, Eric, the manager at the time, I think he wanted some, like some steady stuff, you know? And so I, the bands I was playing in were playing Strange Creek. I was playing with Bo Sasser a lot, who I still play with a lot. Uh, Jay and I, we're in a band together that I had started called Buru Style, which was like weird hipster dub music. I still think it's it was a great, great band. It's how I met Jay. Um, and we were doing lots and lots of recording, but also gigging. We were backing singers, reggae singers, soul singers, and then also doing like weird Brooklyn shows as an instrumental dub thing. And it was really fun. And so we were kind of like beating around on the fringes of the scene that Max Creek was playing the real shows in. And Vasso decided he was done. He just needed a break from gigging. He wanted to take some time away and not be traveling. And so he said to Eric, you should call this guy. So um, I actually met Eric first at a festival at Strange Creek, I think, just hanging out. And then he called me like later that week and was like, we need somebody to play Sterling Stage tomorrow <laughs> and so i just did it and uh i knew like one song but it was me it was actually me and vaso but the whole thing was that i was supposed to replace greg and it was going to be me and all's house but all's house's job all's house has like a crazy cool job as a, a sound engineer he was doing live sporting events he was getting sent all over the place and it just turned out that like every time it was supposed to be the two of us something happened and he didn't make it and so I subbed a few times in 2011 and then in late fall, they wanted to do a series of shows with me and another drummer just to like see how it worked. But it worked out that I think Scott couldn't do any of them. So they said, do you, is there another drum set player you're comfortable playing with? And I was like, well, how about this guy, Jay? He plays percussion, you know, and typical Creek energy. They were like, whatever <laughs> so i dragged jay down and jay's awesome and immediately they were like he's cool he can stay and uh jay and i already like knew and loved each other so there wasn't like any of this like weird competition or friction it was just kind of like support you know and yeah so we did a we did a handful of gigs it was really so that was in fall of 2011 like the first gigs with me and jay this series of gigs at arch street which I, I couldn't make myself listen to those if I tried. I'm so scared to hear what they sound like because nobody told me anything 
look, you join another band, somebody's going to be like, all right, here's the playlist. There's 20 songs, uh, you know, or here's the band knows 50 songs. You have to learn all 50. But like for your first show, here's the set list. So get these ready. Like, are you kidding? And none of the stuff was on the Internet yet. I'm the one who got all Creek stuff on the streamers. So I didn't have any of their albums and I had nobody telling, giving me any guidance whatsoever. So I just went on archive.org and what's on archive.org, like a billion hours of Max Creek (laughs) (laughs) over the course of 40 years. Like, well, okay. So I just had to like dive in and start trying to learn songs. But like the whole first year, Scott, turned around and just looked at me (laughs) and rode me really hard in his way, which was like awesome. And I would always ask, well, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do there? And to a man, Scott, John and Mark would say like, we're not going to tell you, you got to figure it out because we want you to do it your way. You know? So um, like I, the first year was like abject terror, really like a weird combination of joy and terror, you know, because like it was so exciting to do, but also like at the same time, like, you know, Creek's repertoire is so huge. And I'm sure you've noticed like Mark likes not to repeat things. So like I'm doing gigs, but it's not like the next gig I play the same songs again, you know? So if I was to do it again, I would knowing what I know now, there's a method I could apply, but I didn't know. So like, Creek's in a band that talks about, they talk to each other about all kinds of things, but they're not like sit and talk about the organization. So Jay and I were just like, I don't know if we're in this band or we're just like, what's going on here for like, I don't know, at least like eight months or so, but fun times and cool. And uh, I learned much more than songs from them. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Well, in preparing for this interview, I did reach out to some Max Creek fans, and I also got in touch with both Greg Vasso and Scott Alsos, who both contributed a question for you. You touched on this one a little bit, but Greg Vasso wanted me to ask you to talk about the experience of stepping into the drummer role after him, and were there things you did to get comfortable with being the new drummer? Did you seek advice from earlier drummers or members of the band? I think you talked a little bit about that, but what was that like to to sort of step into that role after after him? I definitely sought advice from Vasso. He was the one that I was like close enough with to just call or like, I remember going out to sushi with Greg, but I mean, but his advice was like, well, I do it different every time. <laughs> I remember like really specifically him talking about the, the middle section of big boat, which has the, um, the seven, eight riff that Mark solos over, but the drums play four through it. So it's like every two times it wraps around and hits the beginning. And I asked him about that. And he's like, well, yeah, sometimes I just play four right through it really hard. But sometimes I just nail that seven and just like play seven. It's like everybody says the same thing, right? Like, it's like if you ask a poker player for advice, you're like, well, what do you do when I have a pair of kings? They're like, well, it depends, you know? So, but I did listen a lot. I remember downloading tons of shows from archive and really trying to listen to different eras. It's funny because the guys that I knew were Scott and Greg, Scott and Greg Vasso. And I met DeGoogs a couple times, but I, I only really got to meet DeGoogs a little later, you know? But I remember listening, somebody gave me a copy of Drink the Stars. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. I'm learning every song I'm here. And I loved Gosselin's playing. Gosselin has this, like, I felt something really different in his playing. Like, the rest of us are, like, studied. And Bob is, like, 
he just figured it out. Like, yeah, he learned rudiments and stuff, but like he did not go to music school. He went and lived in a house with Max Creek somewhere and like took acid. <laughs> so, so, um, like really loved his style. I was like, okay, what's the difference? Like started really thinking about the different ways some of those guys played the same songs, you know? And like, what is it that I want to do? And then I also remember Scott Murawski being like, why are you listening to all the old stuff? <laughs> Stop coming in with these old arrangements, you know? So try to take it all in. But um, I listened a lot too. So shows get posted really quickly. So I made it a really ha- big habit to listen right away to the show that we just played and i'm not a guy that listens to myself playing to like think how good i am like i'm a guy that's like oh my god you suck (laughs) you know so that was like my own way of like constantly hearing like the effect of what i was trying to do you know yeah scott also asked this question is there a song that you think you've put your mark on as a drummer since joining the band Ooh. I mean, yes. See, the first one that comes to mind is Face, which is funny because I find it to be one of the hardest ones to play. Like, I'm never quite sure. Like, I, actually, when we played it the other night with Double Drumming with Vaso, he played like almost like a ska beat on it. And I was like, oh my God, is that what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> but um, especially the solo section, I kind of like found a way to like, Jay and I have this like really... Um, kind of deep like west african approach to how we play together on that one that i think is pretty uniquely us like it's like a place where i know i always know like jay changes things all the time but i know when it comes time to play face in the solo he's going to get to the timbales and just start ripping it up with timbales and cowbells and i can play like lots more like a hi-hat almost like um you listen to like not Afrobeat, but you listen to like I guess it's like Congolese or whatever. They do all these grooves and it's like just kick drum and hi-hat, lots and lots of it. That and then I kind of feel the same about the jam and devil's heart. It's like a a spot where he and I like are I know we're gonna link in a certain way. Yeah. I also have some questions that came in from fans of Max Creek that were posted on the Facebook page. Joe Jeffrey asked, what makes the Bill Carbone and Jay Stanley sound work so well together? Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad, Joe, that you think it works so well together. We've been playing together since 08 or 09, and we've spent a lot of quality time together. And... um I don't know that like so we spent all this time when we first started recording together and just like being really creative. Jay is so mellow. He's so virtuosic. Like when he explodes, it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> but like he saves that, right? And so he'll also just play tambourine or like triangle or something like that. So I never feel like I'm competing with Jay. Like I just I love Jay. Like I love Jay, man. And Jay loves me. I know it. Like it's just like we're just we're deep. So like there's just such deep trust. Like we rarely have to talk about anything. We just hear each other's spaces. Um and I think then like on a technical level, the way we hear each other's spaces is that he's basically a master West African drummer with from the Monde people tradition stuff. So like Senegal. If I try to name where all the Monday people are, I'm going to mess it up. But like djembe culture, right? 
and I am in no way the master drummer in that, but I've like done lots of West African drum ensembles over the years where I've played all the different parts and I love it. And then I've done that stuff with him. So that music is built on the idea that the big rhythm is an interlocking everything, right? So even like the drum set that's behind me, it's several Ghanaian drummers put together, right? You get the, the toms and the bass drum are like, one instrument the snare drum is like what they like the kagano would be and then the cymbals are like the bells you know and so like that's three people so like we've done all this stuff together where he plays one part and i play another part so when we jam together i really know how to support him with like melodic parts on a tom-tom or something like when we play drums do a solo and i same back and forth so like we really think about how we can play in each other's spaces as opposed to both of us coming from a drum set tradition where like the fill is at the end leading into the next part. Like for the most part, Jay's like, that's Bill's job. Like Bill plays the fill that sets up the next section. Right. But Jay knows that there's all this other space. So sometimes if you listen closely, you'll hear he takes the fill that leads to my fill. It'll start there and then it comes here, you know? And but I'm also listening for him like that. Like he can take those fills too. Like, and we're really pretty in tune with that. And yeah, we take fills on top of each other. Sometimes if you play four hours, you're going to do that. But like mostly there's this sense of shared communication and there's a complete lack of competition. Like there's not, there's no ego between us whatsoever. Jay would slay me on djembe and congas and timbales. And I love him for that. And like, he wouldn't be able to play a lot of the drum set parts I play, but that's like, there's no competition. Like we're just supporting each other, you know? I have another question here from Jason Cross. He asked, how important is the emphasis on improvisational drumming versus fundamental drumming in the building of a new student or in your own development as a drummer? Wow. That's a big question with many parts, but I would say, um, in my development, it's it's huge. I think that it's really interesting because it's one of those questions where it's like the answer to everything is kind of the same. Like, like so music is language, right? So there's a language to improvisational drumming and really it comes back to the rudiments. So like the rudiments of marching band are the material that Max Roach used to be the greatest drum soloist in, in history. Like he'll never be touched. And what did he do? He took, he literally just, took rudiments and like made the most amazing voicings of them instead of just playing them on the snare drum around the drum set. Then he took that knowledge and he got into West African music and he brought some of that like conversation that I was talking about into his own playing. So now he's doing rudiments and combining like melodic interplay between the different limbs, you know? And so the absolute like most basic fundamentals and the most advanced things are happening at the exact same time. Right. So like they're not separate, I guess, is my point. Right. So that when you start with somebody, when I start, I'm not really teaching right now, but I used to teach a lot. And I would always start people with a single stroke roll. And all a single stroke roll is, is right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. It can be really slow. It can be really fast. But the thing is just, can you do it in time? Right. And then can you put your foot at a, an interval, like one, two, three, four. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And once you get that flowing, 
the single stroke roll is like the snake that never stops, right? So you can play it like really metrically with those divisions or like Kreutzmann just rides the snake, you know? So like that's the, the improv. It's like once you've got that snake happening, the divisions can be anywhere and you can start just like really being really free with it. But the thing is that Moraski is super into hillside playing in one. James Brown is all about the the one. Boom, bat, boom, bat, boom, bat, right? So when you play in one, it's just boom. And the boom can be anywhere. And, but that goes, it just keeps going, right? So all of a sudden you're relying more on the, on the upper structure of it and stopping like, like reinforcing that metric time. Right. But it's still that the spirit of that single stroke role. And you're like playing with interplay, like how can you divide it up in all these different ways? And then the more advanced you get, you're like, how, what am I working into that single stroke role? Like, am I working double stroke roles? Am I, and it's not like I'm thinking about the rudiments while I'm playing, but if you practice them enough, they become part of your language, you know? And like, we used to take Charlie Parker solos and try to play them on the drum set by, with rudiments, you know, get it, get it, and that's still that same thing where you're just like flowing the time. I don't know if that made any sense, but it does in my head. <laughs> I have another question here from a Max Creek fan. Dave Bonin asked, how has your degree in ethnomusicology helped shape your profession in music in and outside of Max Creek? Well, let me first say about Dave Bonin. Hi, Dave. That when I first joined the band, he was like my Max Creek teacher. And if you know Dave, he doesn't really have a filter. So at first I was like, what's up with this guy who's telling me what he doesn't like about my playing? But then I started realizing that I actually liked him quite a lot because he was really honest. He wouldn't say it sucks what you do on this song. He'd say, I don't really like the way you played the beat on this song. I'm going to send you a version that's really good. And then he would. And it's like, <laughs> at first I was like, well, this is so weird. But then it's like, you know what? This guy's cool as hell, man. You know? And so, uh, thanks, Dave. So a lot of that stuff I was saying about me and Jay, the ethnomusicology piece, just like I've spent tons of time like checking out music from different cultures and getting to play it whether it was doing the reggae stuff or the west african stuff with jay or like random things i got to get into at uh when i was at wesley and like all these different types of traditions so they're definitely a like pretty deeply a part of like how i approach music you know so i i i don't know i don't like ever think about like trying to purposefully do it it just is there and ethnomusicology is the study of music as culture so maybe some of the ways i think about the max creek world are influenced by the way i think about ethnomusicology or the, the kind of greater jam band world yeah bill when you think of 51 years of max creek and the different drummers that have been in the band what thoughts come to mind they're each unique individuals and they're each so damn good like Gosselin like wrote the best parts for those songs and had such a beautiful rootsy feeling to Googs is like just such a great rock drummer and brought like, I don't know, he took what Gosselin did and just like totally updated it in this way. I have a hard time putting words to, but I love listening to recordings to him. Uh, Vaso was the guy that I saw in high school and just like, you know, 
formative, but he's got this really direct approach to playing. There's the thing, if I think of like, what is it these people can do that I can't? Like, that's just got this super direct way of like phrasing something that I love. And I think Alshouse is like, he's so fluid and his chops are like so buttery and awesome, but he's also just plays the song so well. And he's such like a, he's so happy. He's <laughs> got play. It's like, he just brings so much joy to it. So I feel really lucky. I never met Rob Fried. So I, I don't, I, and I've only heard him, you know, so, but I love what he did too. It's like this, this distant era. It feels like to me, it was kind of like, I just saw it a couple of times. I do remember the size of his rig. I don't know if you've heard the stories, but his, his percussion rig was like a city, but, uh, I just have so much respect for all those guys and I've got to know all of them now. And uh, it's like my joke with the band and they're like, Oh, it's a special show. What are we going to do? And I'm like, you're going to invite all the drummers, obviously. So, so, but the thing is, I don't mind that. I like it. I think they're all great people and great musicians. So it's really awesome to be a part of the legacy as the guy that's doing it now. And I always am happy when one of those guys is around and I'm always happy to hand them the sticks because I know they're going to sound awesome and like they deserve to get the sticks. I want to shift gears here a little bit. I understand uh, during your day job, you are the executive director at Teach Rock. Can you tell me more about what that is and, and what Teach Rock does? Sure. Yeah. We're a nonprofit founded by Stevie Van Zandt from the E Street Band. The founders board is Stevie, Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bono, and Martin Scorsese. I got the job in 2016 uh, as a curriculum writer. So Stevie founded Teach Rock with a few core principles to guide the mission, which is to preserve the place for the arts in the DNA of public schools, to use the arts as a way to engage every student, especially students in the era of having the internet in your pocket, who have all the answers right right here. And then um, ultimately to increase graduation rates. So the concept is not, despite our name, which is a misnomer a little bit, we don't do performance. It's all about how to integrate arts into everything. So uh, I'm now the executive director. So I get to start really cool projects. Like I, uh, one of my coolest recent projects, well, brings the ethnomusicology and everything together. Uh, Mickey Hart is really the person who introduced me to the concept of ethnomusicology when I was a kid. And I saw a video of him with the beam talking about Pythagoras as the as the beam, as a monochord, and like the embodiment of the Pythagorean theorem. And I was like, shit, man, that's algebra. <laughs> so I was like, talked to some of my colleagues and I was like, can we make algebra curriculum like about the beam? And we're like, yeah, actually, that would be pretty cool. So I just like knocked on enough doors. I got to Mickey's management. And I was like, okay, here's the deal. Here's who we are. I want to make an algebra curriculum that uses the beam. Would you guys be a part of it? And they were like, all right, send us some material and we'll get back to you. So I sent them some material and they called back. They're like, we love this. Let's do it. You know. So we actually created a unit of algebra material that is Mickey Hart math there's videos of him there's custom videos that he made for us in the lesson plan so if you were in eighth or ninth grade taking algebra right now you could have mickey hart like on camera in your classroom so we're what's called an open educational resource which means that 
all the curriculum we make is on our site and it's openly accessible, it's free. So the, the, the concepts there is that we can do things like this. We can be out in front of textbooks. We can embrace multimedia. We're all standards aligned. So any teacher can just pull it in. Like any textbook that gets introduced to a school has to get approved by the Board of Ed. So we're able to offer things kind of beyond that structure. So it could be something like the Mickey Math. It could be things like we have awesome Pride Month material that uses disco and as a way to look at New York in the 70s and, and introduce issues of trans rights and key trans activists. There's so much different stuff. We have like 300 different resources. Um, we partnerships with CNN, PBS, The Dead, The Beatles, um, like all these people to do this uh, really good work. And so then we're also, as an open educational resource, there's about 60,000 registered users. You just have to make an account to use it. It's free. And they represent all 50 states. But um, we're also working directly with over 100 schools in five states. And those in those situations, we're helping them write arts integration into their curriculum map. So, okay, how can we help you make sure that like at least a couple math lessons a semester have music in them? And And the concept is like, there's a few key things. One is that music is the most amazing way to have uh, positive representation of all people, right? Like, so there's, it's it's one thing to have Black History Month and talk about civil rights, but that's not really the, the purpose. Like the purpose is like, let's show greatness. Let's show joy. Like, and what's better th than music, right? Like for that or for women or for like pretty much any group in the United States has contributed to our popular culture. So there's these ways to do that and, and put really positive representation in. And it's going really, really well. I have to say we're, we're in this amazing phase of getting evaluations back and just seeing that what we're doing is working. It's, as you can tell, I love it. It's a super cool job. Uh, I get to work with Stevie a lot. He's pretty into all of it. And so it's like, it's the greatest day job ever because it's still music. <laughs> Related to what you just talked about, I have a question here from Jonathan Winalski who asked, do you have any good Stephen Van Zant stories? And do you know if little Stephen has an awareness of Max Creek? Hmm. I don't think he has an awareness of Max Creek. And in fact, I've kept the two worlds pretty separate for a long time. He does know that I play drums now. It took a long time. My favorite story about him is getting to watch him produce a band one day. He um, uh, was back when we all still went to the office all the time, which we don't do anymore. I work from home now. But the office is a loft space in the West Village that has his recording studio in it. And then his radio station, the Underground Garage, all the people that work for that are there. They kind of run his record label too. And then there's a few other like Stevie associated business people all in this giant loft in the West Village, like open floor plan, not a wall to be found. There's no privacy, none. So it was a Monday holiday of some sort, but like my family was away and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go in and work today and I'll take a holiday another day. So nobody was in there except for me. But then a band comes in that he was producing that he had signed to his label. And um, um, they were supposed to come in to do a couple singles. And the deal with Stevie's label, I'm pretty sure, is that he produces the singles and then the house producer produces the rest, right? So he's going in and they're playing the single and he comes out and he's pacing. And I can tell he doesn't like the song. Goes back in, they play the next song, comes back out. He's talking to the other producer guy and he goes, do these guys have a song we can work with? What have they been listening to? Fucking Rush? 
which cracked me up, right? And I was like, and the other guy's like, no, 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 man, they got songs. We're gonna, we're gonna figure it out. So Stevie's like pacing around and kind of like he's getting, you he can tell he's like, I don't know what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this. So they land on a song and he sends everyone out but the singer, and um, he makes the singer write all the words down, you know. And the singer's like, no, no, I got it on my phone. He's like, no, 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 pencil and paper, get it out, you know. The singer writes all the starts writing all the words down and then stevie goes through line by line and asks a question about each line and then he starts changing pronouns and he's like well who's this song about his singer's like oh it's about me and this and he's like nobody cares about you this song has to make people feel like it's about them you know so and he keeps going through and like an hour later i'm just like a fly on the wall over there like an hour later it's getting pretty damn good and then he kind of does the same thing with the guitar player and the chords you know, like similarly, like, okay, show me the chords one by one. What do you, what, what's that one for? Like, or how about, how about you try to move it here? And then like a couple hours later, the song was awesome. <laughs> and I saw, I was like, okay, I saw the magic. I saw the power. Like, that's just like pretty, pretty epic. Yeah. You had mentioned before that you have a background in writing and you're in music so you're creating things and you've created the songs the bees and it must be nice are you currently writing songs is that is that something you do on the side or i wish i did <laughs> in my mind i do i don't i have very little um i'm currently trying to finish my dissertation <laughs> and working full time and i have two kids so like I, I don't what i lack right now is the quiet time to do it so both of those songs come from a period in my life when I had more time to just experiment, you know, I, and I've had these little moments where I like write a lot of songs. So I'm, you know, it's about making space to hear it in your head. So there's less of that. My head is full of these other things right now, but both those songs, they come from different little moments of creativity. So I know there'll be other moments of creativity. I do keep like running ideas going. Um, and Scott and I get together sometimes. Like Scott has a, Murawski has a studio in his basement. And uh, he and I have cut like, I don't know, maybe four or five tunes that we just write together. A couple that with a little work could almost become like epic Creek songs. And then a couple that are straight up like kind of hilarious. But um, right now I'm not writing new music, sadly. Well, what do you think the future holds for Max Creek, if you had to look ahead over the next few years, well, first of all, can we expect any more Buried Treasure live album releases? I mean, what what, what can we look forward to? <laughs> the Buried Treasure thing, yeah, sure. It's just a matter of time. And then Fred Moore multi-tracked like almost all of 2021, and so we got to get to that. But like the future, it's such an interesting question for a band that's been around 51 years, right? One of the things I love most is that, like, you talk to Mark Mercier, and he's always thinking, like, no, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do this. Like, we got to, like, it's not legacy mode. You know, it's like, let's be creative. Murawski, like, every night needs to be different in some way. Like, he wants, like, the, even when I was just learning the songs, he was just like, just promised you'll, like, always go for it. You know, I think that's 
that's the thing. Like, I don't know. It's hard to make promises. I would love so much to do studio recording and I bring it up like every couple months and we, sometimes we threaten it and um, make, I really think Creek needs to make another studio album. Like, I think that would be the most amazing statement for a band that's been around 51 years. Like here's our first studio album in what, 30 years or like 25 or something like that. So that, you know, but I can guarantee that it holds good shows. Like I think we're, trying to think really focusing on trying to do one weekend a month and make that weekend a really great weekend, you know, and uh, we've even been trying to rehearse before that weekend every time, which is kind of new for Creek. But so that means that like old songs come back, new songs come in um, last couple of rehearsals. We were really working on the vocals. So that's why you got songs like um, eyes on the prize Mark's Mark's new song, which is a Mavis staple tune that we like, we, we worked hours on the vocal harmonies and then creatures of the night and then we we rearranged it must be nice and like i feel like that song is feels really good to play now and so but i would love to do a studio album so maybe you could talk to the guys Corey. <laughs> i'll work on it <laughs> we're getting close to closing out our interview here but i want to know what are some of your favorite max creek songs to perform sure how much time you got there's a handful of songs that have these little spots in them that give me this like deep joyous feeling that i don't know quite how to put into words but when we're playing them and they hit um windows has it to me like there's these moments when windows opens up and i get this like rush of energy emerald eyes uh it's not just scott tunes though like um i really love devil's heart i feel like sometimes the jam in that one we get really deep I love Big Boat with Mark. I love I love the composition of that song, the arrangement and like the the drama that's built into it. Like it's one of the more kind of dramatic ones. Um, but when it really comes down to it, like in terms of the jam stuff, I love I really love Double Dare when Double Dare clicks. I love the kind of like slow, almost reggae feel and the way the solo can just build from nothing. Um, and I really love Emerald Eyes. If I had to pick one, I might say Emerald Eyes because it's just, there's something so epic about that song. Like, just even, like, take me off the drums. Let me watch somebody else play it. I'll still feel the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Bill. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Hooked on Creek. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about Max Creek and everything you're doing to advance music. It means a lot to me. Thanks, Corey. It's so cool that you do this. Uh, it's an honor to know that Hooked on Creek exists and to be joining you on it. And that concludes episode 38 of Hooked on Creek. I really hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Bill Carbone. It was a huge honor having him on this podcast. And big thanks to Greg Vasso, Scott Alshaus, Joe Jeffrey, Jason Cross, Dave Bonin, and Jonathan Wanalski for giving me some good questions to ask Bill. If you're curious, during the introduction to this episode, I played a portion of The Bees, performed live by Max Creek back on January 25th, 2019 at The Met in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And if you have feedback about this episode, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via the contact link on the Hooked on Creek website at hookedoncreek.com or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Hooked on Creek to get connected. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in.